This is Millennially Speaking, a podcast about politics, pop culture, and everything in between. I'm David Latimer. This week, we're talking about the third Democratic presidential debate. What are the highlights? Who are the winners and losers? And what effect do debates actually have on a candidate's future? First, I'd like to talk about some of the events that were sort of leading up to this debate, because there was actually a lot of movement just prior to this debate happening. So that's in regards to who is actually still running for the Democratic nomination. So before this debate, actually between the last debate and this debate, there were several candidates who actually suspended their campaigns and dropped out of the race. So we already knew about Eric Swalwell, who left uh, just after July 4th, this was July 8th, that he suspended his campaign. But through the month of August, there had been five additional candidates that withdrew from the race. And for the most part, this was because they were not going to qualify for the debate stage. Some of them would, I believe, or at least they were close to, but others were just so far away that they did not see a path forward. And some even specifically said that because they could not get on the debate stage, they did not see a path forward. So some of those people included uh, Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper. So so he made a few waves. He had a little bit of a, a back and forth with Bernie Sanders during one of the debates. I believe it was the second debate. But for the most part, he didn't really make any waves at the debates when he did make the stage. Mike Gravel never made the stage, but his entire plan from the beginning was never to make the stage because he's 89 years old, uh, but he never intended to make the stage. His goal from what we've been told is that he wanted to raise money as sort of a, you know, I'm running for president and please donate to my campaign. And that he would then use that money. He would drop out and use that money to donate to particular causes. So that was a choice. I don't know why he was still running, but that was the case. Governor, or yeah, it was Washington Governor Jay Inslee also dropped out of the race. His big thing was climate change, and whether he actually made an impact or not, it looks like his climate policy or whatever his plans were going to be ended up becoming adopted by Elizabeth Warren and several others. CNN had a town hall debate about climate change, and a lot of them were using some of Jay Inslee's policy ideas, and that's really what I had said a few weeks ago about having all of these candidates can actually sometimes be a good thing because it gets more voices and more ideas out there. So even though Jay Inslee's campaign was run on one policy and he had pretty much no chance at winning, his voice still has an impact. And I think it may be one of those candidates that had the greatest impact. You also had Seth Moulton, who never made the debate stage, yet he withdrew. And then I think most notably would be Kirsten Gillibrand. So her big claim to fame when she was getting ready to run was that she was the first senator who said Al Franken when he was, this was during the Me Too movement and he was accused back in the day of inappropriate touching of women and and she was the first person to stand up and say like, no, listen, Al Franken needs to step down, Al Franken should resign. And he ended up doing that, but her campaign never really caught fire. She was trying to be the the champion of women. She wanted to be the voice for women and it just never really caught on. So, you know, leading up to this debate, you had several people realizing that they weren't going to meet the criteria. Then you also had a couple of them that were close and have been complaining about the criteria to actually get there. So you had people like Tulsi Gabbard who did not make it. She was close. She had 
I believe she was qualifying in maybe two polls, something like that. You need to qualify in four. And she was complaining about the specific who gets to decide what polls qualify and which ones don't and which unique polls count. And obviously the DNC sets those requirements. That's their prerogative. But she didn't agree with some of the criteria that they had set. But she had complained about that. Tom Steyer, billionaire, hedge fund guy, he also was close but did not make it. However, he has made it for the fourth debate, which is coming up next month. So there will at least be, you know, unless someone on the stage from last night drops out, there will be 11 people in the next debate. So the qualifiers for the next one are all of the same ones, including, you know, all the way back to the same date. So anybody who qualified for this one qualifies for the next one, and then there could be more on top. So that looks like that's what's going to happen. There's going to be at least 11, potentially 12 if Tulsi Gabbard gets in there. Anyway, moving into what actually happened at the debate, there were a couple of format changes that were, uh, the first of all, the debate was three hours long. So that, to me, instantly, I think that was too long. I think the idea that they were able to give some breathing room was helpful, but in the end, it just became... I feel like it was just too many things that they were trying to cover, especially because a lot of them, their policies haven't really changed. We've heard a lot about their policies already. So giving them the extra time, you know, the for the length of the broadcast, I don't think really changed anything. I think it just got people towards the end getting a little bit distracted and disinterested. So one of the format things is that unlike the last two debates, this one, the main statement part was a minute and 15 seconds long as opposed to a minute. So they had a little bit more time to speak each time they were called on. And then your response was 45 seconds long instead of 30. So they each got a little bit more time to speak. And that was partially due to that long three-hour time. So there was a little bit more breathing room. But my suggestion would have been maybe cut back on the number of topics discussed, especially because CNN just did a climate town hall the other day. So do you need to talk as much about climate change? I mean... I get it. If they had not, I can just imagine the optics of had they not talked about it, what exactly would the media and especially left-leaning outlets, what exactly would they say in regards to that, saying they're just completely ignoring it and they, they don't want to talk about it. You know, cable and network news is so bad at this. Well, so they had opening statements. Um, none of them were super remarkable. I think a lot of them were, they were trying to find a unifying message. I think in the past you had a couple of them where they directly attacked Trump. There wasn't as much of that. One of the big things that I noticed is that Amy Klobuchar, in her opening statement, she really wanted to lean into moderation. And that's really who she is. She is that sort of Midwest moderate who thinks she can, we're going to reach across the aisle and Republicans and Democrats will work together and kumbaya. And she even sort of attacked or, or scoffed at the idea of the extremes on both sides, she pointed out, including, you know, sort of not directly at that time, but pointing out the people in the middle of the stage who are all more left of center or left of left, even. One of the most odd and interesting things that happened was, and this was being teased before the event started, but Andrew Yang, who somehow made it on stage for the third and will be for the fourth debate as well, he actually announced a giveaway, which was pretty odd for a debate, but in his opening statement, he announced that 10 families would be receiving his dividend. So we've been talking about that lately. That's his sort of hallmark policy of uh, every American adult gets $1,000 per month. 
So he has said that he will give 10 families this dividend, almost like a, a trial or a just as a here's how it'll work and here's how it'll change your life. Well, it's a contest. You have to enter on his website and that gives him free contact info, free emails, free more attention on his website, more attention on what his policies are. So good on him. I don't know if that would be a campaign finance violation. I don't know what the legality of that is. I assume that his campaign people would have looked into that before announcing it. And the other noteworthy thing from the opening is that Pete Buttigieg invoked what I've come to notice as a a talking point around this time of year, which is he wants to get back to how the country was on September 12th, 2001, how we were all sort of united and we didn't care about, you know, attacking each other based on party or race, religion or anything like that. We were just focused on being Americans and uniting as Americans, which I've noticed, at least from what I've seen, that's become a, I feel as though more people on the right are using that this time around or, or lately in the past few years than people on the left, only because I think the right tends to look at incivility a little bit more than the left. And, and also because I think the right has tried to own patriotism. And that's for sure, like, you can talk to anybody and, and ask them, you know, which party do you think is more patriotic? And I think nine times out of ten, you're going to have people say, like, Republicans want to be more patriotic, or who seems more overtly patriotic? Maybe not the politicians, but of the hardcore on either side who says they love their country and God bless America more, and it's going to be the Republicans. So that just was interesting to me to see somebody on the left leaning into that 912 narrative. So the first thing that was discussed was healthcare, and as expected, that was one of the most interesting parts of the night. As network television likes to do, they did a lot of question baiting. They did a lot of questions that you can tell were leading and were designed to get candidates to either fight each other or fight back at each other, uh, especially the first question, which was designed to get uh, sort of a reaction from somebody like Joe Biden into what is the crazy socialist plan of Sanders and Warren. Basically asking Sanders, like, what exactly are you going to do? And not only that, they asked questions of like, um, how are you going to pay for it? And will middle class tax go up? And in the past, Bernie Sanders has been a lot more candid about it and has talked about he's he's really trying to soften that message that your premiums and your deductibles and all of that kind of stuff, all of your out-of-pocket expenses are going to go down, but yes, you're going to end up paying more in taxes, including the middle class. That yes, the rich are going to pay more, but also the middle class may have to pay more in taxes as well. So he has actually said that. Elizabeth Warren was asked the same thing, and she kind of avoided. And and I'm going to give it to both sides. So I think Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders both need to be upfront and say, like, this is a thing. I know that people hate to hear tax increases. And when you hear about tax increases, when that comes up, people get scared. They retreat back into their rabbit holes and they they run away. But you need to be honest. And I think a politician with honesty and integrity is what people are craving nowadays, you know, especially on the left, because they see even when they had a candidate like Hillary, who was it didn't excite anybody. They're looking for somebody who feels genuine and excites them, whereas Hillary did not excite anyone or feel genuine to anybody either. But then at the same time, you have the question. Those questions are always designed to get them to say, yes, your taxes are going up. And it's almost like we both know what the truth is. You know, ABC and 
Bernie and Elizabeth Warren both know, everybody knows, middle class taxes are going to go up, but nobody wants to say it. You know, and if ABC asks it, it looks bad on Bernie and uh, Elizabeth, but if they say it out loud, it also looks bad if they were not, you know, asked about it. So the network's doing their job, the network's doing their due diligence, but it just looks bad, and that's why they have to always elaborate. And I feel like every single debate, they're always answering the same question of quality of care won't change, or you'll get to keep your doctors, or whatever it is, and costs are going to be you know, taken care of by the wealthy, but your taxes may have to go up even though your premiums and deductibles will go down. So that's just a big fight that they always have to deal with. And I, I dislike that. <sighs> Joe Biden. Joe Biden pointed out that he, one of his quotes was that he's for Barack, quote unquote, during the healthcare debate. And that was essentially just to say that he wants to expand whatever the, the Medicare option that uh, Barack Obama wanted to put in to Obamacare. He wants to do that. He doesn't want to you know, everybody's for Bernie. Well, I want to be for Barack. He just wants to, just like he said in the past, I want to expand Obamacare, which that's perfectly fine. I mean, I get he wants to continue the Obama legacy, but, and I'll get to that point later, but he he definitely does want to just continue the Obama legacy. Speaking about Joe Biden, one of the things that I did notice is that he definitely was getting a lot more feisty and a lot more, this to me was the first debate where Joe Biden was, I wouldn't say interesting, but I would say he was one that didn't seem like he was just completely dead the whole time. I think especially in the beginning when he was talking about healthcare, he definitely got feisty. He got loud. He got sort of defensive and argumentative. And I think what's important is that for the first two debates, it almost felt like he was just being kicked the whole time. The entire, for the first one, he was just not prepared at all. For the second one, he had a little bit more guts because he realized that he needed to not just phone this in, but he still just felt kind of dead. In this one, at least at the beginning, he definitely seemed like he was ready to fight and he was ready to defend his record or ready to defend what he did with Obama. Like I said, I will explain that in a bit. Warren pointed out that it's not about what things that get lost in the healthcare debate is that people don't necessarily like their healthcare plan, but they like their doctors and nurses. And that's not to say that, you know, what their current healthcare plan does cover, that they dislike that, but that the things that it can't cover or doesn't cover can be frustrating. And, you know, I know a lot of people that have been through that where like a doctor is out of network or a particular procedure is only going to be covered up to a certain point. I know th there's just things that are built into the insurance company uh, that it's just that's how they run. That's the goal of an insurance company is to make money, of course, because they're a company. That's their job. But if you take that out of the hands of a company, they're not going to be nickel and diming you. They're going to... It's, it's just the idea that a company is not looking out for you. They're looking out for themselves, obviously. Just as you would expect, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders... I talked to some people before the debate, and they were thinking, oh, those two are going to go at it like crazy, and they're going to be the ones fighting each other because they're fighting for the socialist vote. And that's not what happened at all. Those two just ganged up on Joe Biden, which is exactly what I expected, because Joe Biden is the front runner. He has been the front runner since he got in. And if you look at polls, I'm not sure exactly where the numbers will go, but Elizabeth and Bernie Sanders are 100%. They are sharing that ideological vote on socialism and democratic socialism. They are holding that vote. And should one of them drop, I feel like most, if not all, of their support will go to the other because they do have very similar policies. It's just, to me, a lot of it is about demeanor, and I think Bernie Sanders does go a little bit further. I think Elizabeth Warren has some of her policies are a little bit tempered 
compared to Bernie Sanders, but they're very similar. And I feel that their support would, if they were one of them to drop out, I feel that it would combine very nicely. A comment that Pete Buttigieg made is that the bill that Bernie Sanders wrote, because it, their, their healthcare policy differs in that Bernie Sanders wants Medicare for all, whereas Pete Buttigieg wants Medicare for all as an option that whoever wants to opt into the program can get it. And his quote was that the the bill that Bernie Sanders wrote doesn't trust the people, essentially meaning that he wants to give people choice and that when you give people the choice, they will pick the Medicare program and that eventually, because we don't enforce the, we have to drop private insurance because we just give it as an option that most people will pick that anyway and it will make the private insurance industry fall as a result because they won't have the same kind of pricing power anymore because the Medicare for all system or the Medicare for whoever wants it will have that power now that they have the majority of people. One of the big moments of the night also that got a lot of heat after the debate, and it was in regards to age, was during the healthcare debate, Joe Biden talked about how he wants to do something now versus four to 10 years from now with Medicare for all, because the the goal is that you have to have a transition period to get off of the current insurance program. And Joe Biden wants to obviously expand Obamacare. Joe Biden wants a opt-in for this Medicare thing or, or whatever he wants to do as a public option. And then he was given some criticism from Castro and says, well, in my policy, I want it to be that they're just automatically enrolled not to buy in. And that got a lot of attention from Castro. He was he got some flack back from Biden and said, that's not what I said. You know, the opt-in versus buy-in. And Castro then went back at him and said, you did. You forgot what you already said. Two minutes ago, and that became a big thing later. It was a big fight back and forth between them, and it became an ageist thing. So now they're fighting that as a age thing that Castro shouldn't have done. They're attacking Castro instead of Biden, and they're making it all about age. And that's a shame because that's, at this point, in in terms of what Joe Biden does and says, is probably lower on my concern list than, you know, anything else that he says about his policies. And, and the other thing I wanted to point out was that during that exchange about healthcare, Pete Buttigieg wanted to call out that there were politicians that were attacking each other on their plan. And he said he was just calling out the incivility in the party and the other sort of moderate Amy Klobuchar agreed. But Castro said, you know, this, that's what this is for. This is a debate. It's a it's a primary. And I get the sentiment, but I also understand that what people are wanting right now is not to divide from within Uh, I think Amy Klobuchar said it out loud. She said a house divided cannot stand. So, and that's true. You know, if you have too much infighting, if the party is not united by the time you get to the convention, you're going to have a big problem when you go to take on Donald Trump and the party really is still not united. And that's what happened in 16. So they're trying to avoid that. After healthcare, they started talking about guns. And this to me, it was definitely a lot more uh, poignant because the debate was being held in Texas and this is post the El Paso shooting at the Walmart. So during that discussion, obviously there was a lot of praising Beto O'Rourke because he's obviously from Texas. He grew up in El Paso. This is his area. So his response to it, they were praising, which I mean, the, the way that he responded to it was fine, but let's not give him too much credit. Okay. This, this was his opportunity and this debate gave him the opportunity to then you know, ride on that. And I think it gave him a little more confidence. And that's why I think he had a slightly better debate this time around than before. 
but still it's better O'Rourke. I don't think he actually had a great performance. I think they just used this opportunity for him to feel more emboldened. One of the things that was, uh, you know, sort of at the beginning of the debate was Joe Biden was asked about Sandy Hook and how they tried to do things after Sandy Hook during the Obama administration and didn't get anything done. Why does he think he can get it done now? So he said, well, first of all, I'm the only person who's actually taken on and defeated the NRA, which was decades ago. So the the polarization that we have, I think, is way stronger than what he realizes. And also that the the main point, he, he was trying to say that, like, there's this big movement, these mothers against shootings and the March for Our Lives. And I don't think that that on its own is strong enough to make change. I think Joe Biden, because he is one of those establishment people, I don't think he necessarily, just because of that, is strong enough to take on the NRA on his own. Public opinion is shifting, but I think him on his own, I don't think Joe Biden is good enough with his history and just knowing who he is. Kamala Harris said that she would take executive order on guns. We've already discussed this. We already knew that she was going to do that, but that was confirmed at the debate. And one of the anecdotes that she said about the El Paso shooting was that uh, regarding Trump, that he didn't pull the trigger, but he gave the ammunition on Twitter through tweets. So it's a racially charged shooting. She's claiming that his rhetoric online and his rhetoric in tweet form has given people who would actually do these kinds of things the emboldenness to actually commit them. So that was her argument. Uh, Another big moment that's getting a lot of attention after the debate is that Beto O'Rourke was asked about certain guns, and of course he was sort of the person to go to about this. He was asked, would you actually take away certain guns? And he said yes. He said, quote, hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15 and AK-47. He's not playing around. He has no intentions of catering to hardcore or even more moderate conservative or Republican. He's not trying to cater to the NRA, clearly. That was a choice. That's up to him if he wants to go that route, but I think that was a very strong choice of words, and I think that was a very strong decision. Post-debate, there was a uh, Republican representative who has gotten some flack, and I would call it a threat. He he mentioned something on Twitter, and the tweet has since been removed by Twitter about his AR is ready for Beto, essentially threatening him with a, a weapon. And, I mean, you can take the tweet as you want, but that's that's how I would take it. I don't know how you take it any other way. One of the other things, and I think we'll talk about this in a future episode, maybe next week. But one of the things that they were talking about when they were discussing guns is the filibuster in the Senate and how you're not going to really get any uh, anything really accomplished while that filibuster exists because there are several, Elizabeth Warren pointed this out, there are several gun legislative bills that are actually sitting on Mitch McConnell's desk, but none of them have gone anywhere because he's using that filibuster to stop them. Bernie Sanders has said he doesn't want to end the filibuster. I think he's thinking more as a pragmatist and not just in the moment because the uh, the problem with getting rid of the filibuster is when you're in charge and when you're in control, it works great for you. But if you then become the minority again and you don't have that same kind of power, your voice no longer matters again. So I get what he's thinking about and I get where he's coming from. Next, they talked about immigration, which seemed very standard. The The arguments and the, the points that were made were pretty standard, but I will bring up a couple of points that were real uh, important, and this revolves around Joe Biden. The first thing that they talked about was his record on immigration, and the main thing that they wanted to talk about again, which we've discussed at debates, was 
his support for border wall and the three million deportations during the Obama administration. He, as normal, he sort of ignored that and and pushed aside. Well, I was the vice president and I did what we did, and he he's ignoring that. And Julian Castro pointed that out again this debate, which is something that we've already discussed, but that when it's convenient for him and it works for him, he says Barack and I, and it was uh, our team and what we did together, and I'm proud of that. But when it's something that he doesn't want to talk about or he doesn't want to defend, he says, well, I was just the vice president. That was, you know, that's what we did. It was 10 years ago, whatever he wants to say. One of these days, I, I, I cannot understand why Joe Biden supporters are just so you know, on board with his campaign when he doesn't want to answer simple questions like that. Next thing they talked about were tariffs and there's actually, you'd be surprised to know that most of the candidates actually have zero intentions of removing the Trump tariffs from China right away. So, so tariffs are a complicated thing, and especially if you remove them instantly, it I think that worsens the problems that we have over there. They're designed as leverage. I don't know if the sort of sporadic and erratic application and taking away of tariffs is helpful and that was one of the that was sort of the big theme of that discussion was that the trump policy is erratic that was a word that kept coming up cory booker then said trump's he believes that trump's america first policy is an america alone or america only policy sort of as an isolationist thing and that you know we are a world economy and we are so interconnected that we can't just focus on what we're doing here because we do need the things that are found internationally. They talked about the conflict in Afghanistan and a little bit of Iraq, just sort of as an anecdote, as part of it. Uh, one of the things that Elizabeth Warren pointed out is that the problems in Afghanistan can't just be solved with the military. So keeping troops there, it's been, you know, 18 years now. There are now people who were born after 9-11 who can now serve in a war that was partially started because of 9-11. So we're getting to this point where this war just needs to end. So that was, she's pointing out that we can't just keep troops there just because there's problems there. The problems aren't going to be resolved by the military. Pete Buttigieg actually said for his military plan, he wants to have Congress be required to take military action. I don't know if that's such a great idea. I think it makes it so that way if there were to be a 9-11 style attack again, if there needs to be some kind of military action in response to that, you're not going to get uh, as quick of a response. So, you know, Americans' actions will be delayed. But to be fair, uh, we didn't immediately jump on whatever happened on 9-11 either. It took, uh, I think it was sometime in October of that year. So it was, it took a little bit of time. It wasn't like we had an immediate reaction. And 9-11 was a direct attack on us, a declaration of war. And yet we didn't respond for another month. So I get it. I understand what he's thinking and that he wants to prevent us from just getting into these endless wars. He also says he wants to have a three-year sunset plan. So the idea is that when we go in, we have an idea that hopefully in three years we should be out or that the plan would be three years now. They talked a little bit about Venezuela. And this is another one of those times when the moderators, the, the news organization, tried to bait Bernie Sanders and wanted him to defend socialism or democratic socialism the difference between venezuela and what he's proposing and he pointed out he wants what canada and scandinavia has regarding things like health care he also pointed out he wants you know living wage support trade unions uh, fix the wealth inequality because there's he says that there's like three billionaires or whatever in the world that are basically controlling most of the wealth and most of the power in the country 
and it, he's not talking about sort of the authoritarian socialism. Another interesting thing that was said during this debate or, or just after that, they were talking about Cory Booker and his vegan diet. I don't know why that question was even asked was, would you tell people because of the climate crisis and, and saying that we need to move away from beef and, and animals because it's adding more carbon into the atmosphere, should we all switch to a vegan diet? And he said, no, that's a personal choice. I'm not enforcing and telling anybody to do anything that they have to do or want to do. So that was a really dumb question, a really leading question. And Andrew Yang even said after that, he wants a new program called Democracy Dollars. This would be sort of a campaign finance reform. Basically, you get $100 to give to anyone you want. And his goal is to overpower corporate money with money of the people. And again, I don't know if that's legal either because that's giving money from the government to people to then give to potentially campaigns. That that was sort of what he was implying was that you give it to other like maybe congressional or Senate or presidential campaigns, which I think to me sounds kind of gray area in terms of legality, but that's the plan at least. They talked a little bit about education. I don't think that was as interesting. Several of them wanted things like the universal pre-K and canceling student debt and things that we've already heard in the past. Pete Buttigieg, he said he believes that we should respect our teachers like the military and pay them more like doctors. Kamala Harris said she wants to close the teacher pay gap, which she said was somewhere around $16,000 a year that she she believes that they're underpaid by about that much and wants to invest $2 trillion in historically black colleges and universities. Uh, Sanders said that teachers should make at least $60,000 a year. It's a good starting salary. That's the plan, as long as it's not mandated as to sort of what your cap can necessarily be. I mean, if they're all just making $60,000 a year, then what's the incentive to do any better? But he didn't elaborate more on that at all. Lastly, another interruption by protesters. I don't know what they were saying, but I do believe it had to do with... It was interrupting Joe Biden. I believe it had to do with his deportations during the Obama administration that I believe they were saying something like 3 million deportations or because that happened at the last one where they were interrupted, where, where Joe Biden was interrupted by protesters. So I think that could possibly be or I potentially that's what I heard. Uh, and because of that interruption, he really stumbled through. This was a closing statement he was making. He really stumbled through it. He didn't make any sense. And I, I think it really killed his momentum going into the end. So normally at this point, I would declare winners and losers of the debate, but to be honest, I don't really think there were any winners or losers at this debate. There were, obviously you had Joe Biden who has a lot to lose being the front runner. To be honest, because you were only down to one debate, you had one night of debates, you got rid of a lot of the clutter. Yes, you want to have more voices to be able to get more opinions and more ideas out there. But at some point, you got to just start winnowing. You got to start getting people out of there. So that way you get, uh, you know, your your Amy Klobuchar's and your Julian Castro's, you know, the people that are maybe sort of in the middle might be able to get some more attention because they were giving airtime to people like John Delaney and John Hickenlooper who have no chance. So to give the people who, who may actually have an uh, opportunity to state their case, you're giving them an opportunity you're getting an opportunity to talk to your Joe Bidens and your Warrens and Sanders to, you know, they're, they're the top tier. So let's find out what's going on actually in their policies. You know, let's really dig deep into them because you're at the top. 
You have a lot to lose, so let's get in there and really figure out what your policies are since you are doing so well in the polls. Really, if you're if I'm going to have to pick winners and losers, your winners would be your mid to lower tier and your losers are your top tier as the the top has the most to lose, but again, not that not that Joe Biden did great, but I think he did better than ever at this debate. And like I said, at the beginning he was doing really well, towards the end he kind of stumbled. But this was definitely an improvement over his previous ones because he definitely seemed like he was much more engaged, much more willing to fight back on some assertions. But I still don't think he is as feisty or as powerful in his convictions as anybody else is. And lastly, what does this mean for the candidates moving forward? The only thing that I would say is that when you don't qualify for a debate, you start to lose some support and not just from individuals, but also from possible endorsements, you're going to lose them because it's looking like your campaign is no longer viable. So for the 10 people who are still eligible for the next debate, I think their futures are at least good through definitely through the next debate, definitely through October. It's after that that things might change again. And then with adding Tom Steyer on, because he's now eligible, I think that might change things a little bit. Probably not, but it could, because that's another voice on stage. That's a voice that we haven't heard before. I mean, we've looked at some polls. I've looked at polling. The The numbers really don't move much. The only time when numbers moved was after the first debate, you saw Kamala Harris's numbers go up a bit. She surged, maybe... 10 points at most. And then by a month later, by the next debate, she had dropped right back down to her uh, pre-first debate numbers. I think it's really not going to make a move until we start getting closer to Iowa next year. Now, I know you've got maybe maybe a December or January debate might be helpful, but I just don't see that there's going to be a whole lot of movement or a whole lot of change. There's way more variables right now than after we start getting votes in. So the third debate... Most boring, but still important to moving forward. And that's all for this edition of Millennially Speaking. I'm David Latimer. Be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And if you like this podcast, share us with your friends. We're also on Instagram at millennially underscore speaking. And I'm excited to announce that we're also starting up a Twitter page. We are at underscore MS podcast. So be sure to follow us there as well. Thanks for listening.